episode 30 of Etc. Etc. with Young Southpaw. That's moi. Me, if you ain't got your French tongue on. You know, once again, I've been thinking about Swiss psychoanalyst Carl Gustav Jung's role in the music scene, you know? I mean, people must have been all like, Young, you crazy! Postulating a collective unconscious like that. What are you playing at? Everything's connected. I mean, even in a game of Connect Four, there's got to be a winner and a loser, and then the game stops, you know? How you go about explaining that the rules are different in your dreams? All these people try to laugh him off, you know? And keep in mind, this being Swiss German, they're all pronouncing it Connect Fear. I mean, little do they know they're playing right into the great man's theories. But Young remains cool as eyes, you know, sticks to his guns. He knows what he's talking about. He's all in touch with the future. Like, he knows Van Halen and Def Leppard are going to come along. I mean, heck, he's even channeled them for some of his theories, you know? All singing, Anima! Confusing the title of that Def Leppard single with the tune of Van Halen's Panama, you know? But can you blame him? I mean, things get all mixed up in the collective unconscious. Going, Anima! Anima! And it starts to give him his Anima Animus theory. And in the process, provided Susie and Budgie with the title for their third Creatures record. As well as inventing Japanese comics. I mean, of course, this wasn't the first time Jung was involved in naming records. He was apparently doing that left and right. Giving old Stingy and the police boys synchronicity, you know. Of course, the irony of it being that no one's policing the collective unconscious. You could just steal people's phrases and release multi-platinum albums there without anyone batting an eye. Or getting any royalties back. But Young's not too concerned with credit, you know. Or with any of these naysayers. I mean, he knows what's coming up in 1987. Anticipating it like a mofo. And he will be justified with the release of Appetite for Destruction. And it's lead off track. Welcome to the jungle, you know. I mean, of course, Axel couldn't pronounce it like that. Give the game away. I mean, it's not that easy. Like, like the next song on that record would imply. I mean, Appetite for Destruction is... Chock full of early 20th century Central European psychoanalysis. Just wait till you get to side two with Think About You, Sweet Child of Mine, and You're Crazy. I mean, start considering those songs and Freud's theories and you won't have to look very far. You just need a little patience, you know, as, as they would later say. 
There's that rumor that Freud once threw Young out of his study for punning on that GNR song while talking about their <laughs> medical patients, you know. <laughs> but I'm not buying it. But you can hear him clear as day saying to Freud, my way, your way, anything goes. I mean, imagine if Young and Axel had a band together and it was just called Gustav and Roses, you know? Keep the G, keep the G-U part of the guns. I mean, how different would that have been from the history that we know? Some would say not all that much. And of course, we can't skip over Jung's whole involvement with the music of the 70s. I mean, people have been asking this question since the dawn of time. Who was Carl Jung's favorite OG punk band? I mean, Sex Pistols, Buzzcocks, you know, see more more Freud's cup of tea, you know? I'm not saying he made tea out of male members. I mean, not not even pandas. I've, I've heard, I've heard that's an aphrodisiac. But I just don't know how that would have any bearing on who Freud or anyone's favorite punk band was, you know? Unless the saying was like, never mind the bullocks, just put, you know, the, the other thing in a, in a cup of tea. Whew. But back to Young. I mean, there are people who claim that Carl Gustav Jung was actually in the Ramones for a while. For a lot longer than you'd expect, too. I mean, the story goes that when the Ramones released Pleasant Dreams, Jung felt it was time to speak up. For dreams, I mean, as he knows damn well, can be anything but pleasant. It was a conversation he would also later clarify with the Eurythmics, you know. And so apparently Young got in touch during the European leg of that Ramones tour that November, you know. And Johnny, Joey, and the gang were so impressed that they just immediately handed Young a leather jacket and jeans. Magically just his size. And from there on out, they got down to some serious work. C.G. Ramon. Paving the way for C.J. to come through in 89. The band honoring Young right before this happened with naming their greatest hits collection, Ramon's Mania. And then when C.J. joined, the first album is called Brain Drain. That's almost enough for me to rest my case. But let's look at the facts. The next Ramones album after Pleasant Dreams was Subterranean Jungle. Young's name right in there again. And what a better metaphor for the collective unconscious than a subterranean jungle. My goodness, those boys were onto something. And what's the big hit off Subterranean Jungle or Jungle, however you want to pronounce it? Well, only psychotherapy. If you want to hear more of this story, and believe me, there's more, a lot more. 
head on over to the Young Southpaw Part of an Hour podcast, which you can find at youngsouthpaw.com and all your favorite podcast providers. The story spans episodes 29 and 30 of that podcast called Young Guns and CG Remote. But let's get to this week's episode of this podcast. It was my pleasure to talk to a comedian whose work I've been a fan of for a long time, Mr. Greg Proops. In fact, it was seeing Greg and the boys doing a Who's Live show in Augusta, Georgia, that inspired me to get up on stage and start telling these stories. His The Smartest Man in the World podcast is one of my favorites. I mean, the first podcast I ever listened to regularly, too. And on this podcast, we covered a lot of ground. So let's get to it. All right. We're here today with Mr. Greg Proops. How you doing, Greg? I'm good, Southpaw. How are you? I'm pretty good, thank you. I've had Boney M stuck in my head quite a bit lately. You Which one? I've had a cross between Ma Baker and Rasputin, which, you know. Yeah, Rasputin is the one that England, well, I lived in London and they never stopped ever playing Boney M. It's a wonderful song. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, they get it done. Let's write a disco hit about what? You know, Mad Russian Monk. Right? Uh, there's so many uh, um, sort of obscure and awesome disco groups from England. Um, I can't think of the cat's name who, who uh, sang I Believe in Miracles. Uh, he'd been a star since the 60s there. He has that fabulous voice, you know. Uh, Where did you come from, Anga? And um, I don't know. They weren't, they weren't letting a lot of uh, black artists uh, at the table uh, in England, as, as you might say. There was also a fake uh, Senny and Cher called Cleo and um, Caesar. Really? Yeah, who uh, donned the same, you know, they wore the fur elf vests and whatnot. And then fantastically, on Live at the Palladium on Sunday nights, there was two pigs that were the worst puppets in the world. And they were pretending to play guitar and they'd always play like Everly Brothers songs. So it was two pigs and they were called Pinky and Perky. And they would go, they'd speed it up, right? Bye-bye, love. Bye-bye, happiness. Hello, loneliness. I feel like I'm good. And I always thought that was hysterical that Pinky and Perky were like a thing in England. Because that's- Mind you, this was a while ago. When you think of entertainment. <laughs> two pigs. Right? The Beverly Brothers. Where, where did you live always when you funny. were in London? Sorry? What area did you live in in London? I lived there for quite a while. Oh, did you? I lived in uh, various areas. Um, we lived in um, Queensway for briefly um, in a friend's of a friend's flat that had um, uh, wooden floors and you could see into the flat below through the slats. <laughs> so it was fantastic. You know, if they played music or smoked, everything came up, you know. And uh, we used to just rent AbFab uh, videos from the video store and watch them over and over again. And there was a really good Indian, a curry down the, down the way. So that was a frequent. Then we lived in um, Hammersmith, but it wasn't quite Hammersmith. It was Fulham. And you had to walk your ass back up. Uh, that, don't, that only lasted a month. The best part of that flat was um, there was a little patio in back, which as you know, in London, it's a big deal if you have any yeah. outdoor space. And uh, the um, Concorde, this is how long ago it was, the Concorde flew directly over the house uh, twice a day, right? In the morning and then again in the afternoon. And when it flew over, it was loud, yeah. like, you know, F1 fighter loud. And so we'd sit out there with our wine or whatever, and then the Concorde, and it was just this big. It was a small plane, but it made so much noise. 
before it kicked into supersonic when it was in its jet mode it was the loudest goddamn thing i've ever heard outside of a b1 bomber in uh oman which is the loudest thing i've ever heard wow and then we lived in hampstead for uh which is where all the showbiz people as you know oh, our, yeah. our mp was uh, uh glenda jackson and uh this was in the 90s and um so we lived there for several years and there was a flower guy on the corner you know as they do standing outside all day even in the winter and every day i'd walk by and go hi and after about two years one day i walked by him and he went you're right and then i knew that i was you know in the neighborhood it took two years for him to acknowledge my existence and i said hi to him every day you got to put in the work england's uh uh especially then, I don't know so much about now, but they weren't easy friends, but they were long, they stayed with you. Whereas in California, people are easy friends, but then you don't see them later. Yeah. Oh man, one of the saddest stories I think of my life was when I moved, I moved to Kentish Town when I first lived there. And oh, right I know that. Yeah, right outside the tube stop, there was an amazing curry place. And every right. day I would go in for lunch and the waiter just looks so sad. And yeah. I ordered the same exact thing every day, dal soup and sog paneer. Nice. For two months, like five times a week, probably. And then right. one time I'm walking down and uh, I decide I'm going to try something different today. You know, I've had the same yeah. meal forever. So I go in and I see the waiter. He gives me a slight smile. And he sits me down and he says, dal soup, sog paneer. And I had to say, no, man, I'm sorry. Today I'm going to have, you know, whatever I was going to have. Right. And Chicken he biryani. He hung his head, walked oh. in the kitchen must have gave someone else my order because I never saw him again and I lived there for two more months. Oh my God, that's so funny. You know, you crushed him. You crushed him. If you'd I said, yeah, let me have the usual. He'd have been like, uh, the, the kid's back. He wants to start, you know. Smile even bigger, you know, made his day. But yeah, no, I no. The regrets. Well, that's the thing about London, isn't it? No one really walks around with a smile on their face. It's kind of a doer. Uh, it's a fabulous place, but it's, my joke when I lived there was people would come up to you and go, howdy neighbor, how you doing? Come on over. We're having a barbecue. Cause no one ever, no one would ever say hi to you first. No. And then you go, uh, it, it's like a secret club. You get invited to England. I remember Kurt Cobain hated it when he went there and said it was the coldest place he'd ever been because emotionally everyone's completely unavailable. And, um, their idea of dating is to go out in a giant group and get really drunk and then shag each other and then never speak to each other again. I think it's, like the dating process yeah but i mean i love them you know i've, I've played there for a hundred years and it, they're kind of the reason why i was allowed to gallivant around the world for a million years and uh, do everything is because having any measure of success in england really allowed me to go to every other place and you know uh so i love them and we were talking about how many times we played there last year <laughs> and uh it uh it's just, we have friends there that we've had for 30 years, you know? And so that's what makes it great because yeah. we actually know the same people and uh, have the same haunts and stuff, which we hope will stay open. I had a really good experience last year, uh, Southpaw, with, uh, um, I was in the movie uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, which is from the early nineties. And uh, Danny Elfman, who wrote the score and sings Jack Skellington, the last five years got it in him that he wanted to do the show live with a full orchestra. So they did it in Japan without me. And then they asked me to join. And I've done it at Hollywood Bowl a couple, three times, uh, Brooklyn, uh, 
uh, last year we went to Tokyo, Dublin, Glasgow, and London and did it at Wembley at Christmas time. So wow. last year was kind of hard to beat for me. And then followed by this year, which is of course, yeah, mm. this year's 1918 and, uh, or 1917. And so, uh, but playing in Dublin, I mean, playing in Dublin, playing in London at Wembley, it's all built up now, you know, like that. It used to be cruddy and full of like uh, uh, chippies and uh, curries and um, uh, uh, kebab. And now it's kind of built up and there's a big food mall with, you know, the Thai food here and the bur artisanal burgers. And, you know, yeah. uh, Wembley's in a real built up area. We stayed at a hotel that was Soviet level shitty. And that's what I really enjoyed. Like the, the, the refrigerator was warm, you know, like there was a fridge, but it didn't really get cool. Um, and <laughs> There was no closet. There was, you know, the, like the prison peg, like in Midnight Express. And um, they checked us into a room. I'm sorry, you're going to hear probably um, leaf blowers. I'm in Hollywood. Okay. Um, we checked into the room and uh, in the hallway was what appeared to be like a, a Buchanan barricade of mattresses and dead furniture upturned. And the smell of epoxy and paint, right? They were obviously redoing a room and gluing the rug in. And the smell was like, uh, what does Martin Sheen say in Apocalypse Now? Like slow death, right? So my wife goes, no, right? And I go, I'll be right back. <laughs> ran downstairs, the horrible, horrible Eastern European lady that ran the place. Um, and I said, I'm honestly, I can't stay in this room. And she's like, what do you want? I'm like, well, to move to another floor that doesn't smell like glue and paint and have a barricade of dead furniture. <laughs> this is London last year. I'm not talking about, and this is the uh, 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 Nightmare Before Christmas cast. You know, we're, we're all staying, not Danny, but the rest of us are all staying there. So they moved me to another room and that one, you know, the only good part was there was a McDonald's across the street, but you had to run across no uh, zebra crossing, dude. So you had to run across the traffic, right? The, going both ways with the, the median and, and no railing. Just that part was pretty exciting. In order to get a, a <laughs> kebab, my wife and I had to run across three different streets like Rome. And you're like, uh, so that's the kind of thing uh, that London is best at, really letting you down. And uh, at the same time, lifting you up, because then we'd go to Wembley and do the show with a fabulous orchestra and the place would go bananas uh, for the show. And I would jump up and down for, my, uh, for the bow and, you know, exultant, right? Yeah. Uh, and the food was okay. The catering was okay at Wembley. And then you go back across to your hotel. And, <laughs> and one night we asked the kitchen to stay they said they'd make us something after the show. This is all of us, right? So there's dozens of us, you know? Uh, and they made us some pizzas and shit, and they were kind of, you know, like cold by the time we got there. They didn't, like, cook them when we got there. They sort of threw them at us. And then they closed the bar early, and we were all in there drinking, and you're like, you know, you could stay open another hour. And But England, money. as you know, harshing your fun is one of England's great skills. <laughs> <laughs> so i've been a big fan of your podcast the smartest man in the world for years thank now. you you're very welcome and uh one of the things i love is when you digress into concerts you've been to in the past because that would seem to have this enormous sense of adventure and ridiculousness to them 
I was wondering, like, what are the ones that stand out in your mind? Well, now that you mention it, um, a couple. Um, I want to see the two, uh, uh, Tower of Power and Cheech and Chong with my cousin Donnie, who I rolled with for a long time. He moved to the Bay Area, uh, where I lived, in uh, San Carlos, Belmont, little crappy white suburb, whitest place on earth, home of the Plain Yogurt Festival. And uh, he'd lived in Arizona, and I knew him when we were little. Now we were teenagers, so we had cars and weed and, you know, dangerous, and, and uh, uh, methamphetamine, uh, which we called uh, crank. And what was our other drug? Uh, oh, beer uh, and a butyl nitrate, which was a form of amyl nitrate, like a cheap ass version. I worked in a mall and there was this place across from where I worked, the restaurant called the Mailbox, M-A-L-E, the Mailbox. And they sold <laughs> Coke spoons and it was just great. It was, this is like 1978, right? So they, they sold vials and stuff. And they sold um, butyl nitrate in a vial, and it was called Craze or Waze, or I can't remember the name of it. He, Donnie might remember. And so we would get a bottle of that and fucking snort speed and do this shit and smoke weed and go to these fucking, we went to see Blondie and uh, the Ramones, uh, uh, um, ACDC, uh, Queen, the Tubes, uh, 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 all lists the 70s, you know. So. Wow. It's, and then, so we went to see Tower Power. And Cheech and Chong opened. And this is what was brilliant. Uh, very, very Second City style. Two folding chairs on stage. And Tommy walks up in cholo gear with a headband on. And it takes out a thing and pretends to clean off his low rider. Then he gets in it and fucking lime, right? And then Chong comes up on the stage and goes like this, right? <laughs> so he pulls over, gets in the car, and he goes, hey, man. He says, hey, what's up, man? He goes, you got any weed? And, the, and Chong goes, I got mesh, I got Thai, I got Lumbo, I got red, and starts going through a litany of 70s weeds, of which we did have a lot of strains then, even though, not like now. And um, we remember, I remember thinking they were so fucking edgy. Then Tower Power came on, and uh, I had an Onyx pipe that I bought at the mailbox. Onyx, right? So it's that, that white brown stone that you put a little crappy screen in and I'd loaded it with a tie stick or whatever. So we lit up and this was indoors. The circle stars were Sinatra played and uh, Ella Fitzgerald and, you know, it was a, a cabaret Wow! and it was in the round. Right. And that's what made it horrible. Southpaw. This was in my hometown of San Carlos. The, 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 uh, the, the, the famous theater there was a round one. And I mean, everybody played there. Go look it up sometime. It's like, I saw Ella Fitzgerald there. I saw Pearl Bailey there. I saw Patty Page, the Mills Brothers, Tower Power, Jimmy Durante when I was six. I saw wow. Jimmy Durante. Yeah, my dad, my parents were old school. So that's why we saw all those like Pearl Bailey and the Mills Brothers and shit, yeah. which I'm glad I saw. But yeah, but you could smoke weed inside. Uh, but what was great was the, the engine of the machine that turned the giant stage was loud. And I mean loud. So like, Ella would be up there, you know, you can't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing in there. Clank, boom, whoa, <laughs> right? And the, so Tower Power's up there and the fucking stage starts to, so you could only see them one eighth of the time, right? Because they were only facing you for a minute and then they went by you. So they kept perpetually coming by, which is like, why, right? 
why not just rope off one half? <laughs> this was a thing. There's one place we play still with whose line it's in New Jersey, I think, or upstate New York, and it's in the round. And they've done that. They've roped off the back quarter. So you're yeah. you, then you only play like this, like a gladiator. Oh, you're not amused. Then you only have to play three quarters. But um every act that I saw there, the noise of the of the turntable was and then sometimes when it stopped, it did not stop or start smoothly. It went like boom. <laughs> so everybody on stage fucking uh and so the stars had to come from a star uh, uh, aisle, right? There was two aisles on either side. So the dressing rooms were outside of the theater. You weren't on anywhere near the stage. So you had to be brought down. So they had to walk by everyone every time. And you could talk to them. You could yell at them. You could. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it was fucking. Uh, and then another good one we went to was uh, ACDC. Not so druggy, but. Uh, uh, we drove down to Santa Cruz Civic, and um, which is about an hour, hour and a half from the, the peninsula where I lived, and um, over a mountain. Right, you, you take this road like this, the sub Highway 17, and it's through a forest. Right, so you, it's like the Hobbit the whole way. Then you get to Santa Cruz, and it's all serial killers and you know and dope <laughs> and seafood, and uh, oh, the boardwalk with the giant Ferris wheel and the giant. Um, Roller coaster, which is called the Giant Dipper, and uh, is mortally terrifying because the first two minutes of it are inside, and it's rickety, and it's built at like the in the twenties, and I don't think they've ever nailed a board back down or painted it, you know. So when you're on that part, it's. In any case, we drove down to Santa Cruz to the Civic, um, and it was the Ramones and Blondie, or Blondie and the Ramones. No, I guess the Ramones were opening. Bonnie had already had a bunch of hits, right? They passed them up a little bit. This 79, maybe. Wow. And um, we were real high. And um, Debbie wore a Jets jersey, I remember that night. And the Ramones, of course, were just ridiculously great. Yeah. And yes, Zippy the Pinhead came out at the end. And they, you know, gabba, gabba, hey, gabba, gabba, hey, the whole audience. So cut to, that was, what did I say, 79, oh. somewhere in there, 78, 79. Uh, cut to you about eight years ago i'm on tour with who's line so it's what 30 years later and we play the santa cruz civic and i walk in and i'm like i've been to this venue and then i was like oh god i saw blondie here when i was a teenager and it seems so big in my memory my recollection of it was that it was this ginormous hall and when we got in there it's a 1500 seater you know it's a little, ah. way smaller so I walk over to the stage manager, who's a woman about my age. She's got her headphones on. And I go, I saw um, Blondie and the Ramones here in 1979. And she went, that was a good show. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so she had been there, uh, <laughs> even though it was 100 years later. But the wildest one we went to was, uh, I was with a... Uh, my friend Jay and uh, I've told this on a, a special I did, but anyways, uh, I was working in Burlingame at a pizza parlor and the guy around the pizza parlor sold um, crank and weed, which I discovered my first night working there. He didn't make me deliver it. Um, maybe unbeknownst to me, I was, uh, um, but I did buy it from him. So you would make a bunch of money and then you'd give it all to him. Right. Um, and he was, he was a, a not a happy go lucky guy because he took a lot of amphetamine and that doesn't make you blithe. Yeah. 
makes it makes you grumpy. And um, he, uh, a former guest of the uh, California Penal System, uh, I believe a, a short stint in the Marines, because he had all the, you know, uh, and it's the uh, the gold chain and the, uh, and the burns, and his dealer would come in, and that guy weighed. 85 pounds, you know, like he was thin, no shirt, a leather vest, and one of those leather Civil War hats, you know, the kind that has the crossed. Yeah. And his girlfriend was, you know, three and a half pounds, rabbit fur jacket, tight jeans, you know, giant, giant platform shoes. And they had a Doberman pincher because I would deliver pizza to his house and he'd go, hey, pizza dude, all right. Because he talked like that, I assure you. Uh, Hey, you want a bump? And I'd be like, yeah, too much. And going in the next room, uh, like the Broy Hill furniture from the 70s, the white and blue, you know, this, this the bureau set with the mm. dresser and the mirror with the white mirror, you know, and then a giant rail of methamphetamine, you know, length, lengthy. And the Doberman, and I'm like, uh, and he's like, oh, don't worry, he don't buy it. So the Doberman's putting his nozzle up between your legs and you're trying to do that <laughs> delicate balancing act where you're snorting methamphetamine but trying to keep a Doberman from biting you in the balls. That one, yeah. And uh, <laughs> so we got a bunch of speed and we went to see, uh, who the fuck was it? It was someone awful. I want to say it was like Ronnie James Dio and, and No Dice or something. Wow. Ronnie James Dio had been in, uh, what? Deep, exactly. Richie Blackmore, Deep Purple... Black Sabbath. Black Sabbath. His his heavy metal credentials are uh, fairly impeccable. <laughs> he he did he did this a lot. Oh yeah. <laughs> Long live rock and roll. Long live rock. Kind of a shamanistic, uh, long-haired. I can't remember what show it was yet. Be honest. And um, we parked. Uh, there was nowhere to park at the Fillmore. This is the Fillmore in San Francisco. It's on Fillmore and Steiner. In those days, the neighborhood was pretty nasty, like real ghetto. And it still has its moments, but it's a lot nicer now. And the Winterland was ruddy. Uh, the ceiling always, a piece of the ceiling or a piece of the floor always fell on me. Like a, I'd pull up a piece of the floor that I was on or a piece of the ceiling would hit you in the head. Because it was all um, parquet wood from like the teens. It was a beautiful place, but no one had taken care of it in 60 years. Mm. And they sold Cokes and hot dogs behind a screen like that's how you got food so you pushed your money under like it was so there was no board park and we're idiots from san carlos and we're high and drunk we were drinking tequila and snorting meth and we're in my friend's corolla and so he goes get out and i'll park because it's a really small space like i got to get out before we park so i get out he's parking a black uh, lincoln continental comes down the street with Red leather trim on the outside, black tinted windows, wire spoke wheel covers. And I'm in the middle of the street, shit faced. So the car is coming down the street. It's not doing anything out of the unusual, prowling even. And I, hey, fuck you, man. Fucking car stops or pulls back. Window uh, There's two fucking 325 pound Samoan gangsters inside, right? Their eyes look like uh, COVID virus maps, just a red 
sprouting, horrible, incandescent thing. There's weaponry hanging from the filials. They've got a, a, a steering wheel that's this big. That's one of those iron links, chain link thing. So, and they both turn to me and they go, and mind you, I'm like an 18 year old who weighs like four pounds with long hair and glasses. I enjoy. So, right. Well, <laughs> beyond. Yeah. There's some kind of problem. And I'm like, perish the thought. There's no problem at all. This <laughs> beautiful evening. I came here to celebrate fellowship and friendship and amity, comedy. I, I thought we might, I was just celebrating life and all of its single digit glory as you drove by it in particular. Because if there's some kind of problem, we can deal with it. And I'm like, there's no problem at all. I, I bid you both the jolly good evening. And I hope that all of your travels are as safe as they, so finally they split. Oof. And I fucking, and paranoid. Now I'm no longer high, by the way, because yeah. <laughs> it, it drained the highness out of me. And I'm sitting on the corner and I'm crying. And now my friend gets out of the car. He's finally finished parking because the whole exchange took a minute. Or however long it takes to park, a couple minutes, right? He, of him backing for He gets out and he goes, what's your problem? I go, they're gangsters. And then and they kill me. They were going to kill me. He's like, you're not dead. I'm like, they know, but they were going to kill me. And they were, they were gangsters. And yeah. So the stupidness that you can get up to when you're a suburban idiot is almost limitless. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the shows then were, you know, no bottled water, everybody smoking weed and cigarettes inside, um, decidedly drugs being done, people selling hash and acid, which seemed to be a very big thing in those days. You'd walk by a dude and there was always a dude coming down the line. The queue would be going in, hash, acid, hash, acid, which I never bought because really you? Yeah. <laughs> we would buy early at, early at home. It also helped when I worked for a drug dealer. That made it a lot more convenient. <laughs> you mentioned ACDC. I was watching <sighs> last night. There's a video clip of them, like 1976, just hanging out on the streets of Covent Garden. And Bon Scott has no shirt on and impossibly short, cut-off uh, jean shorts. It's just yeah. a bulge. And they're just walking around the street in the middle of the day in Covent Garden. Yeah. It's like... That's what you need to be a rock and roll singer, you know? Yes. <laughs> that attitude. Oh, my God. He was so, yeah, he, he really is that person. And he would say, they said he would, they would go like, what are you, what's your gig? And he'd go like, I'm a rocker, man. I'm just like, it was all about chicks and being on the road. And he was ripped, right? He was always, you know, he wasn't good looking and he had no moves, but he could scream at the top of his voice. And he was the only thing that cut through that guitar assault. So I saw them in 78. And Donnie and I drove down to San Jose Civic, San Jose something, so a real shitty gig in San Jose. And um, not Civic, that's not too bad. I played there. Uh, anyways, uh, they, were, they weren't headlining, oh. if you can believe this. This is like 77, 78. Oh, yeah, it was, they broke. Right? right? It was, um, uh, what's his name? The guitar player, Ronnie Montrose. Oh. Ronnie Montrose with Gamma. This is after he was in Montrose with Sammy Hagar, right? This okay. is all Bay Area shit. So ACDC was the middle act and that's who we went to see, right? Yeah. And uh, we dressed up at my house and I have two pictures of us, um, Polaroids. I still have them in my garage. I found them during the beginning of the containment because I was going through everything. And I found a scrapbook from 1978 that wow. had the dates written and everything very carefully in colored felt pen. 
Nice. You know, what a great month of concerts and shit, blah, blah, blah. And then pictures of me with when I drawn all around them like a frame. And we're going like this, we're being total idiots. And I'm wearing like a tweed jacket and a long scarf, and he's got a ruffled shirt on and shit. <laughs> so we get to on the way down, we're smoking weed and Donnie goes, let's just pretend to be English the whole fucking time and see if we can fool these fucking motorheads. And I'm like, I'll do it. So we get there, we put on these cod English accents and fucking everybody's talking to us and ask us about England and we're just lying, right? <laughs> oh yeah, brought in this, it's great, you know, because you just, you know, and like, <laughs> so that was 45 minutes in line of just pretending. And because we look so fruitopian, everybody was, okay. Nice. So ACDC comes on and they were just sensational. They're one of the best rock. The first time I saw The Clash, I think, uh, the Ramones and ACDC were the most straight ahead, like, you know, fury, just fury and really good and well-practiced, well even if they were high. Um, and Bond had no shirt, the tightest jeans in the world, tennis shoes. Angus came out with the school uniform, the whole thing with the bag and everything. And then, yeah. of course, that's shed one by one by one. And there was no chanting Angus in those days, but he was already, we knew who he was. and. There's part of the show that blew everyone's mind. One, their attack, because they, they lined up in a diagonal, right? It was Phil and uh, Malk, is it? Who's it? Phil's back there. Malk and the, and the other brother yeah. here, yeah. Cliff. And then uh, Angus in front, and then Bond kind of a satellite. Or Angus a satellite and Bond in front. So yeah. they came at you like that. And, they, and it was just... And Angus never stopped banging his head. Where you, at a certain point, you're like, you must have brain damage. Because, I mean, wow, your sciatic nerve or whatever I, nerves in them. I listened to uh, Bruce Dickinson's autobiography a couple of years ago, and he talks about, you know, he had the really long hair. And like yeah. really early on, he had to cut it. At first, he had to wear a neck brace because from banging his head, he was doing right. damage to his spine, which only makes sense. Right. <laughs> oh, my God. So they, they, they disappear from the stage, uh, Angus and... Um, uh, uh, bond. And so it's just the three of them up there banging away. And everybody's like, huh? What has happened? Cut to great commotion toward the front of the stage. He had a sneaky cordless, which was like unbelievably high tech in those days, right? He had a cordless guitar with a radio transmitter, right? Yeah. This is the 70s. And Bond is carrying Angus on his shoulders like a child. And Angus is furiously headbanging, screaming away a solo, and he comes right through the crowd like that, like the circus, and like vaudeville, and went awesome. right through the crowd and went right back on the other way. And people were just like, "Yes, you know, it was, it was the most off, more better than pyrotechnics, better than if they'd little, you know, how later during thunder, thunderstruck, it would just be the bombs going off. There was no flash pots, nothing." They were straight stripped down band with crappy lighting. And it was really exciting because they, they're so they're rock and roll. I mean, you know, yeah. they're, they're rock and rollsy. Uh, uh, and then Ronnie Montrose came on and we split to show our contempt <laughs> for him not ever being able to follow how awesome. So cut to I'm drunk and it's the nineties in England. And I come home late and we've just gotten cable in the nineties in England when they got cable the nineties yeah. <laughs> and our neighborhood got it. So we got it. So now we had all these channels like the fashion channel. And uh, uh, there was some channel that just showed old shows and I'm kind of high. I've come home from a gig. I turn on the TV 
and it's ACDC from 1978. And as I watch, it was at a, a, a university in England. It was, you know, like at some really crap, like Doncaster or something, you know, Huddersfield, you know, it was, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, as I'm listening to the set, I realize I saw this set. Wow. This is the set I saw, right? Because they did a song called The Jack, yeah. which is about having venereal disease, which Bond explained at great length to the audience. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the more romantic moments of the show. And I, I recalled the actual order of the song they played. It was all, you know, uh, uh, the first two albums, three albums. So they did Sin City and, you know, it was all very exciting. Anyway, that's a long, boring story, but... Uh, no. Later, of course, when, when I moved to San Francisco, people would pretend to be English for real, like as a kind of a sideline. This is in the late 70s, early 80s. You'd meet people and they'd be like, yeah, how's it going? And be like, there was a, I worked with a girl at a tchotchke store in the 80s, and she affected a um, Susie and the Banshees, which was a very popular look for women, young women in yeah. the 80s in San Francisco. White face, kabuki makeup, black, crazy, goth hair long dresses, boots, jewelry, you know, you know, as Cliff Richard said, she's just a devil woman. And uh, I can't remember her real name, but she went by Natalie or something. And she told, you know, and then years later I saw her and I go, hi, how are you? And she's like, good. And I'm like, and then I realized, of course, at one point she told me she was from Santa Rosa, but she had spent several years acting English, which was a thing. Then I moved to England and I started to pick up the accent a little bit. And my wife said to me, stop, don't, don't be Madonna or whatever. It wasn't Madonna then, but it was like, he, she said, they don't want you to be one of them. The reason why they like you is you're the other. And yeah. I was like, right, right. So I never, I picked up the, the lingo, which I use constantly and very annoyingly. Cause I'll say, we bold in or push on or, you know, that kind of thing. just because they have so many great phrases. Yeah. It's like people, are, yeah. yeah. Like people are wet <laughs> or um, one that people really like is fuck straight off. <laughs> Someone pointed out to me over there that you can basically take any noun, add an ED to it and it will mean drunk. Cause I love that they mm -hmm. call it trolleyed. <laughs> trolleyed. Yeah. My favorite one is from Scotland, which doesn't follow that rule. Sadly, steamboats. I see. I was told that by a cab driver in Edinburgh and I'm like steamboats. Yeah. And then the other one, the Scottish pish pished, which if they say in a Glaswegian accents, pushed. Glasgow's pretty impenetrable. I get a guy, um, give me, um, uh, a, a, tea, a cocktail towel, a tea towel that has Glasgow, it says Glasgow patter by, by the way. And my favorite one is, um, let me have a turn. And then in, in uh, Glaswegian, give us a go. Give us a go. But they, they speak it rapidly and with no enunciation. And then and they drink a lot. And so now you're drunk and now you can't understand it. And you have to just, I've spent many nights going. Yeah. But the, I find the Glaswegian crowd is the most uh, challenging comedy crowd in the world. I love them the most because it's the only place I'm nervous before I go on. Really? Not for the podcast, for stand up. 
Yeah. Because stand-up's strategic and specific. The podcasts, I know they're going to go with me because I'm going to talk about them and make fun mm. of them. And, and they love that because they want to be whipped. But with the stand-up, I'm always like, Ugh. if you start making bad jokes or you tell a couple in a row that fucking suck, Glaswegians will be like, what the fuck? Like, they just don't, they're not having it. They want, you know, they want you to have rehearsed and they want, and know where are people from. You can't do any of that shit. Like, okay. if you asked a Glaswegian what they did for a living, they go, I'm a comedian and I'm more successful than you. You know, like, they'll just come right at you. Yeah. And so you can't fuck with them. Uh, you can fu- you can mess with them, but you can't, you know, come back there. You know, the last time I did, I was real nervous. And I was playing a church, of course. There's always a converted church with a pub in it, which I love. I played two or three of them. It's just the best idea. It's so Scotland, though, isn't it? It's like, a, a you know, religion and drink. And, and um, right. And then if there was only like a football pitch yeah. <laughs> and a bad metal group like Nazareth or run rig or something, you know, and, uh, <laughs> I was nervous as the Dickens I'm outside and, you know, I'm smoking a joint. I'm looking at my set and I get on and it just went, I got a standing ovation at the end. And I was like, never prouder of myself. Cause I did a set the year before where I came out and tried to improvise at one point, like there was an interval and I came back out and I had a book or something someone had given me and I thought, oh, I'll just wow them with some of my off the top of my head shit. And this was, <laughs> you know, five minutes of that. And finally, I just, because you have to be honest with them. I go, okay, this isn't going very well. Let me be the first to notice. <laughs> but we're moving on now and it's going to be funny from here on out and then right back into the jokes and then they're all right, all right, all right. So uh, I, I quite enjoy it there. I didn't get to play stand up there last year, but we did do nightmare before Christmas there. And, uh, in this big, uh, arena that Rod Stewart played the night before. How's that for Scotland? Oh, wow. <laughs> I saw Rod Stewart too in high school. Uh, and, uh, Scottish crowd, you know, just fucking. And I played there so long because I I've been playing Scotland since 1993. I've only missed maybe one or two years and Glasgow, Edinburgh, Edinburgh every year, almost and Glasgow many times over the years. And toured, of course, around Scotland. So uh, I, I'm known to them. Nice. And uh, so a lot of them come see Nightmare Before Christmas, and all of a sudden I pop up on stage, and they're like, what? What are you doing here? <laughs> yeah. And uh, what I love about Scotland's people is, like, they'll go online or whatever and say how great the show was, and they'll go. And Greg Proops was there, too, so there was extra value. <laughs> like, you got more for your ticket. You, did, you didn't expect <laughs> that you get that two quid, <laughs> that two quid incremental bump that I provide with my low wattage. Very nice. <laughs> right? Oh, hey, Greg Brewster, I forgot you fucking sang in the show. <laughs> oh, and I get to wear Fez, which is just sensational. That does sound like fun. <laughs> yeah, a Fez is also singing with the orchestras. Like, talk about rock and roll. It, it, it's so loud. I'm right next to the conductor. So I'm you and you're me. So that's the, what the cues are like. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he sings them, John Mocheri. He sings them with me. So we sing them together. We sing the songs together. And behind us is all the violas. So when the show starts, he's like, oh, 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 right? And it, it comes right through your chest, you know, because uh, we're right in front of them. So all the strings are right behind it the singers 
So it's just sensational. And there's gongs and bells and a Celesta, you know, that Christmas noise is a Celeste. Uh, and uh, I really like the, uh, in, in Tokyo, uh, they had like four or five timpanists going at once. And it was just, so when they get to the big parts of the soundtrack, boom, 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 boom. It's just it's fantastic. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then in Glasgow, the, uh, our conductor's named John Malcheri. And when the Glaswegian orchestra would ask a question, they'd go, oh, June, June, I have a question. <laughs> On the second part of the, uh, uh, and John, John had conducted the Glaswegian National Opera for eight years. So he understood Glaswegian and he spoke it. He could, he could, our August conductor with his white hair and his glasses and his tuxedo could go, hey, Jamie, who took a shot in the hood of the fucking, you know, like he, had, he could curse in Glaswegian at really gay. <laughs> so it's a fun place. Really rough, man. Yeah. I mean, rough, rough and tough. You Which makes it, you know, sorry, rough and tough places are often really fun to play because uh, the crowd's spunky. Yeah, if you win them over, it feels like an accomplishment. Right? You mentioned gongs. I, I never got to see it, but Alex Van Halen used to have a gong that he would set on fire behind him, which right, I just thought was right. amazing. Do you ever see Van Halen? No, I never saw Van Halen. Um, in the early 80s when they were really huge, I was probably going to like, uh, English beat or Elvis Costello. I was a little more on that uh, tip. Um, there was um, at, when I went to San Francisco State in, in the late forties. Um, Bill Graham was alive, and his company was called Bill Graham Presents. Instead of what is it now, Live Nation or something? Anyway, uh, a way to rip students off and yet let you see a free show, which you'll do when you're nineteen and twenty, right? You'll do anything for a free. Yeah. So there'd be on the bulletin board at school, the bulletin board um, tonight, uh, uh, like for instance, Nina Hagen, you, you remember Nina Hagen, oh, yeah. the, the awesome star from Germany, same period, early eighties, late seventies. And uh, you can go to the show for free. You're an usher. You have to bring a flashlight and wear black and be at the show at seven, right? The show starts at eight or whatever. So we'd all take the bus over from state, right, to the, uh, the Fillmore, because it was at the Kabuki Theater, which was a right in the corner from the Fillmore, as I was describing to you earlier. And uh, you'd all be stood up in a line like a uh, Downton Abbey, and the, <laughs> the Bill Graham person would go, you go upstairs, you go here, you go there, you go there. You have to see people through the first whatever, and then you can fuck off and do what you like, right? Really? So we all, okay. <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm telling you, you didn't get a Coke. Oh, nothing. So I did. Um, oh God, I did. Uh, Nina Hagen. I did Boomtown Rats. I think oh, Boomtown wow. Rats. Right. Don't like Monday. Boy. But Nina Hagen was great. It was a largely funk, and uh, the guitar player I remember had an asymmetrical bob. And before the show, when we were getting this theater ready and going to our sections, and we were all standing there together. Nina Hagen came out with her baby in a baby carriage and her giant white hair and her enormous eye makeup and her leather outfit and walked by us and went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so really she was just a mom on the road at that point. But her range was astonishing. She would, uh, 
she, she could do a man's voice like this and then what? you know like opera i didn't see Van Halen, but i i before he passed and he was a lovely man i only got to meet him a couple times oh, wow. um a guy named keith emerson from emerson lake and palmer so keith emerson would set his keyboard on fire right and play with the keyboard on fire you know it's like how do you do it <laughs> so when i met him uh i'm friends with I'm with Fee Waybill from the Tubes. He's the lead singer of the the Tubes. For, again, 70s, early 80s. Yeah. And uh, he's a lovely guy, and the Tubes are still a group. So he was invited to do Mark and Brian's Rockin' Christmas or whatever. This was several years ago, maybe 10 years ago. And it was uh, a super group with Slash, Rob Halford, uh, uh, Keith Emerson on keyboard. Can't remember who was on drums. And uh, 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 Jeff Picaro from uh, Toto and a million groups on guitar. Jeff Picaro and, uh, not Jeff, yeah, am I getting it right? No, Steve, uh, I'm blanking on his name. Fee wrote, talk to you later with this guitar player. And so that was the number he was doing. It was like a rock and roll show. Like everyone was coming out and doing one number, right? And then uh, after them, Foreigner came, Foreigner <laughs> came out and did a set and Hart came out and did a set, right? Wow. I told you it was rock, Mark and Brian's Rock and Christmas. <laughs> So uh, afterward, we repaired to the bar. And by the way, I've hated Foreigner my whole life. I watched them that night, and there was only one member from the original group, and they were great. And I was, I remember turning to Fee and being like, I can't. I never thought I'd enjoy this. <laughs> and you know the words, because you know the words. Yeah. <laughs> you already know that. I've been waiting for a girl. So we're now in the bar, and uh, Keith, and I are drinking together. We're chatting. And he's like, he's a, he's a little drunk. I love you on who's like, I don't know how you guys make that up. Right? It's like, you know, it's off the top of your head. I mean, you know, it's like, no one's told you what it's like. You fucking hang of it, don't you? And he has a, a vest on, a no shirt, a, like a shark medallion, tinted shades, uh, long hair, epaulets, just awesome harry and he takes his wine he's drinking we're both drinking wine in a plastic glass and he goes like this with it because he's gesticulating as he speaks and a woman walks by and goes keith and tilts his glass back up like that and i go the wine patrol they're everywhere and he goes siri did you say the wine? i mean you know you just fucking thought of that didn't you <laughs> so he says to me, um, Greg, I'm at Dave Brubeck. And I'm like, how'd that go? And he goes, he said to me, Keith, I want to know one thing. How'd you play with the keyboard on fire? <laughs> so he gave me his business card, which I still have. And it says Keith Emerson, you know, keyboardist, composer. And it's a picture of him playing the fire. And and I, he came to he came to the podcast once of Bar Lubitsch, and he was really lovely. He's just a lovely uh, guy. Sadly, he's passed, but um, hmm. that made me really laugh. That Dave Brubeck's one question to Keith Emerson wasn't because you remember Keith Emerson had like five keyboards, right? There'd be like yeah. two over here and a piano and a thing, and, and they played classical music too, if you recall. Oh yeah, Emerson and Palmer played classical music on stage for teenagers. <laughs> Are you familiar with the film uh, Listomania? 
Mm. I don't think I've ever seen the whole thing, but bits and bobs, certainly. It's mind-blowing. Rick Wakeman as a reanimated yeah. Viking, and Ringo Starr as the Pope, and uh, Roger Daltrey as Ryan This list. list. Uh, he has like a Rolling Stones big penis, doesn't he, at one point? One of like the Stones had on that tour. Yeah. A very unfortunate penis. <laughs> I, I should go back and revisit. Ken Russell's always out of control. Mm. His yeah. movies are... Um, sometimes they're staggeringly imaginative and other times you're like, are you just trying to kind of freak me out every second here? And I think the answer is both. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's Tommy, uh, which is really a, I don't know that I've ever seen it again. I saw it night when it came out. We went to this giant theater in San Diego, 75 millimeter or whatever, and, you know, the surround sound, the whole, people were losing their minds. I got kind of bored of <laughs> the perviness didn't really carry it for me, <laughs> but then the who are pervy. That's true. <laughs> when you were living in, uh, were you living in San Francisco when a view to a kill came out? I, I was not only living there, I am an extra in it. Uh, me and another comedian named Bob Rubin spent an entire night. I think we got $25 each. It was a freezing night in San Francisco. It was 1984, five. Yeah, and, it was before um, it came out in 85. Yeah, uh, we were all lined up down Market Street on either side, and uh, we were supposed to be the crowd watching this enormous police chase. So that's all we did all night. The, the third unit director, told us to shut up and then you know, make noise here and go. And they just drove cars up and down the street for five hours. And I think, I believe we were paid 25 in cash on the night. It's my recollection. Wow. Might've been 50. Yeah. And I had bright red, uh, bright orange fluorescent gloves uh, to keep warm because I worked at a tchotchke shop called red peppers. And that's the kind of shit we sold. Like we sold shirts that said, relax and, and fluorescent stuff. Yeah. Cause it was the eighties. So by then that we're into the super graphics and mesh Bundeswehr t-shirts and wife beaters and little German bags. And yeah. <laughs> as, as a man who's fond of wearing suits and drinking vodka, are you a bond fan? I am. Jennifer and I were talking about my wife and I were talking about it uh, the other day. Um, uh, how completely and hopelessly outdated the entire idea is. And how you have to just set that aside. And yeah, <laughs> well, because Sean died, and Sean has some invincible things he said uh, about treating women uh, abusively. And uh, however, having said that, he was a hero of mine when I was little. He might have been the first star like I really, really loved because I got to see Dr. No or something when I was like four or five, you know. And my dad took me to all, my sister took me. And then I would go on my own. I remember seeing Thunderball on my own. You only live twice on my own with my friends. We go to the theater and just you know it had the gadgets and the chicks and i was six seven second grade what how old are you in second grade seven yeah. and um we i had to go to sunday school that year for some reason my mother got a notion that it would be real important for me to get some church and i didn't mind it because you know it was bible stories and there was always food and shit and it got kind of freaky which i liked People tell stories about being run over and then getting back up again after they were run over. Like, that didn't really happen. <laughs> I remember a guy telling a story about that. Like, and it was like, because of the power of the Lord and shit. And I was like, no. So, yeah. Uh, 
and I like I like the pic, you know, I like the Bible stories because it was all set in Roman times because I really liked the Roman, you know, I'd already made the connection as a child from the movies that the Romans had a lot going on with the Jesus thing. And uh, <laughs> um, uh, I, they bought me a little suit and it was a little a navy blue suit with a white shirt and this clip on tie. And I'd wear it to church with dress shoes. And then when church was over, which is what, um, the afternoon or whatever, I'd go, um, can I keep the suit on? My mother would be like, yeah. I'm like, I'm just, I just need to wear it the rest of the day. And then I'd get my Star Trek tracer gun and all around the apartment building, in the pool, just fucking shooting other kids with the tracer gun. But when you have the suit on, my small mind equated James Bond, Sean Connery, the suit, the gun. It was all what you could aspire to be as a seven-year-old. And then a friend of my dad's bought me the James Bond kit. That was an attache that opened up. A knife came out one end, then it opened up. Then there was a radio that turned into a machine gun and a camera that turned into a Luger. Yeah. Nice. That was pretty hot stuff. What's your favorite Bond theme? You didn't theme? get an asked. Huh? What's your favorite Bond theme? We've been discussing that a lot lately, too, because we had to pick a few to play the other day. Um, I'm partial to Thunderball only because it's not popular and no one ever plays it. And um, the words are kind of weird, but I love how Tom Jones sings it. I think the two best are um, probably the Shirley Bassey ones, Goldfinger and Diamonds Are Forever. I think that Diamonds Are Forever is a classy little song. And Moonraker. The Carly Simon one. Whatever. Moonraker. I love that. Shirley Bassey again. I, exactly. I was glad they brought her back a bunch of times. I thought it was great. The other one I really love is License to Kill because it has nothing to do with Bond at all. It's just awesome that they got Gladys Knight to do it. And I don't know if you watched that versus between Gladys Knight and uh, um, uh, Patty LaBelle earlier this year. It's been making the containment, you know, uh, bearable. They did like a, a, a what's that? A, like an Instagram live or whatever, but it was called Versus that, you know, they different people match up against each other wow. and you, they sat in chairs and a DJ plays their music and they just sing all their hits one after the next. And she sang fucking License to Kill. And then I made Jennifer listen to it because there's a curry on Dean street right around the corner from whose lines executive offices on Burke street that we always ate at. It was cheap and shitty. And we just guzzle beer. Cause it was open late. The only places you could get beer late. In those days. Mm. And the only record they had was License to Kill, the album, I think. Because every 15, 20 minutes, you heard License to Kill. And my English friend, Paul, pointed out to me the first time we went there. And we always, like you say, you always got the same thing. I, my recollection is I always got onion bhaji and, um, and lamb uh, kagosht. Anyway, uh, he pointed out to me that on every single chorus, Gladys Knight goes, I've got a license to kill. <laughs> so have a listen. Cause I'm oh, pretty sure will. she does. And it's, she never doesn't do it. And it just makes it. I think you only live twice is a good theme. Yeah. Um, I like the original one where there's no music, where it's just. Uh, oh, and uh, the instrumental for honor Majesty's secret service is just awesome. Yeah. That's yeah. enough. That movie's not that bad. I mean, that was the first one I saw, so I'm very partial to it. But I, you know, Diana Rigg. That's what I was going to say. It has the best of all of the possible uh, girls, as they call them. But uh, 
My dad took me to see that in the movie theater. I remember very well. And also no one ever talks about it, but Mike Myers, Dr. Evil is Telly Savalas. Yeah. Combined with Donald Pleasance from You Only Live Twice. Yeah. He's bald. He has a monocle. He has a scar. He wears a, you know. Yeah. He's, last time I watched it, I was like, God, he just stole every beat. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> A friend of mine actually wants to start a band called Dalton, where he everyone dresses as Timothy Dalton and they play the tunes from the two Dalton uh, Bond movies. Because, you know, there were auxiliary ones besides the theme as well. But this License to Kilt thing is going to make this rather interesting. Yeah, License to Kilt. And what's the other one he's in? Something Daylights? Living Daylights, which AHA did the theme. Oh, God, you're right. I saw it in the theater. I'm almost sure I did. Some of them passed me by because I saw them once in the theater and I don't. Like there's a bunch I watch over and over on TV. Like uh, for much with loves, unmissable. And yeah. the other day I was watching a part of Thunderball, which isn't exactly captivating, but <laughs> um, the French actor who's in it is absolutely stunning. Oh yeah. Um, I'm gonna. I don't know. Oh my memory. Anyway, uh, and then lately, of course, uh, the one with Christopher Lee and Roger Moore. Um, Man with golden gun. The man with the golden gun because it, it it's hokey and it combines every crap element and I just love that one. What does Christopher Lee say? Here's to us, Mister Bond, the best at what we do. I love a woman in a bikini, no hidden weapons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the sexism is just awesome. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. I love Roger Moore, but like as Bond, and it was, it's basically all one-liners. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, he's like a cocktail party. <laughs> but uh, were you a Persuaders fan? That t- TV hmm. show? I, I love that. Me too. Jennifer really loves it too. It, 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 the, the thing about them is that they're both slightly overweight and really too tanned and kind of sleazy. And you feel bad for like all the women that had to be on the show because it had to be a grabby affair. <laughs> I mean, that show just exudes. It, speaking of they always wore like little, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, baby. It was really, they were on the Riviera, was it all the time? Yeah, they just sort of gallivanted around Europe and then maybe a crime would come up that they had to solve. <laughs> right, so were... it was super, super sexy situation. It was like the logical extension of I Spy because I Spy was kind of like, what if two sleazy dudes just sleazed around foreign countries? But I Spy didn't have the breadth and scope of sleaze that the persuaders did because they could actually go to Spain or whatever and be like, girls would go by and they'd just be like, wow. You know, and you're like, what? <laughs> I knew, I, I know an actor uh, named Ian Ogilvy and he, after uh, Roger Moore's first excellent saint, uh, they did a, a series in the 70s called The New Saint. Like they did The New Avengers. Yeah. yeah. And Ian Ogilvy played it. And Ian Ogilvy's a really lovely guy, very funny and smart. Um, but this is, he's got like the high, low waisted hip huggers and the mustache and the tight shirts that are buttoned down to there and the, the fucking sports car. And he just drives around Europe and like, there's no plot at all. And right? <laughs> the new thing is like, like talk about hoping a crime happens. Like <laughs> there's definitely a chick and, you know, and then you get out of your car and like smoke and hang around for a while. And like, it was just great. And he's giving it zero, you know commitment it's awesome it's really awesome those kind of shows are great fun uh, but again of, you have to be sorry speaking of christopher lee i uh, i watched dracula ad 1972 recently 
Uh, I know when you watched it because I watched it with Jennifer. It was on last month. It was on in October. Oh, was it? I, I actually rented it. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> I had never seen the whole thing. And I was just like, you know, because someone reminded me that the Danish translation, if you translate it back into English, is Dracula chases hot pants. <laughs> ah, that's right. Well, that's what it is. It's, I was like, I, I also, the way they set him up in the very beginning, and then they don't bring him back until ever, and then he has no lines, and then he goes to the teenage crucifixion where the the one weirdo Charles Mantony dude keeps pressing too hard. And I watched that one for a variety of reasons. It's kind of my wife's; uh, she loves that genre. You know, uh, the Profundo Rosso Italian films and the Hammer Hammer horror is a big thing around Halloween here. Oh, so we watched so. Dracula eighty seventy two. We watched the Order Lock with. Uh, Boris Karloff, we watched uh, some of them almost stop completely like statues. The movies are so pl- slow paced. Yeah. <laughs> AD 72 is kind of groovy because there's that whole drink my blood, take drugs, and you know, hang around with a bunch of kids. Yeah, the music's good. <laughs> the opening sequence where Van Helsing is chasing him and, 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 is, yeah. And then the jet flies over because to indicate that we've, <laughs> we've, we've jumped to modern times. Oh yeah, and the outfits in it. Oh yeah, yeah. No, that's that's pretty groovy little. I'm not a big horror person because I don't like violence against women and I don't like gore that much. So I'm never a big Texas Chainsaw or Saw or any or movies where women are tied up. I'm always like, whoa. Uh, so having said that, I've been you know rewatching every movie of all time, as I'm sure we all have. Like, and movies that you watch, like a month or two ago, I watched Moonstruck and I was like, I really love this movie. Like, <laughs> I didn't know I loved it. <laughs> I remember watching it. I remember thinking it was funny. And I watched it again. I'm like, now I'm crying, you know. <laughs> Function of getting older and being in isolation, I think. Yeah. It's, what else has been like keeping you going during a lockdown like that? Oh, my wife, you know, she's been cooking up a storm and, uh, she made bread today and uh, we do the podcast together every Sunday and uh, it's a gregproofs.com. Uh, that helps me uh, move along. I'm, I've been able to do a lot of shows. I've done shows like every week and live stand-up shows. And we're doing like a who's live show uh, on the 12th. I'm doing my podcast on the 9th at the nowhere comedy club, but I don't know about you, but, trying to go back and work on stuff that I'd previously made and edit it and put it together has not happened. And that's been since March. Yeah. I have a big bunch of recordings that I've got to go through and fix. Now they're going to be dated. And (laughs) (laughs) I just haven't, I've listened to them all, but I haven't been able to do the physical work of like, for some reason I cannot focus. And I don't know if that's just me or the world. We're all a little anxious uh, and we're in California. And so the governor told, I mean, the mayor of Los Angeles yesterday said, um, if you can help it at all, don't go out. This is as bad as it's going to get. And we're like, okay. It doesn't really make you want to go, you know, party. Yeah. But having said that, we're safe. I'm privileged. We're alive. Uh, I've got a, uh, dazzling variety of cheap ornaments that I bought. <laughs> so I'm trying to stay happy. And how about you? Uh, are you reading anything good? 
which big thing been keeping me going this year? P.G. Woodhouse novels. Oh, nice. I, uh, I got really into them this winter, and the audiobooks are fantastic because it's you know, the proper British actors reading them. So, who is it? Stephen Fry and who 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 oh. does the P.G. Woodhouse? There's there's like three main ones. Right, was escaping my mind. That's okay. My memory's so faulty today. I can't believe it. But they're they're hilarious. <laughs> I know. I I need to go back. I, I again, Jennifer gave me a bunch of um, Evelyn Waugh at the beginning of this. Oh, nice. And it is still sitting where I put it in April. Have you read any before? Yeah, uh, I'd read a uh, Love One and uh, I think Decline. Uh, I have a detective author named James Crumley, who I love, and I went back and reread every single one of his novels. Nice. They're all set in Montana and the Northwest and Texas, and they're all very cokey and lots of firearms. It's just great. And they're all middle-aged guys. It's never, you know, it's got all veterans, shattered veterans who are middle-aged guys. So I love it. And uh, I, I don't know why I don't relate to any of it. And um, I'm reading a book that I dug out of somewhere it's uh, George Stevens Jr. Um, his father was George Stevens, the filmmaker who made uh, Diary of Anne Frank and Greatest Story Ever Told and um, all the screwball comedies, uh, uh, Women of the Year and whatnot. And uh, his son taught a film class at UCLA in the 70s and he got everyone to come in. Men, it's all men. So it's uh, Howard Hawks, uh, Ray Harryhausen, John Ford, uh, uh, Sajid Rai, uh, Ingrid, Ingmar Bergman, uh, uh, um, Raul Walsh, uh, William Wyler, uh, uh, Stanley Kramer. So every film director that made, oh, Gene Kelly, you know. So wow. it's it's just interviews with all of them. So it, it's very racially not diverse. <laughs> I think there's two people who aren't white guys. Uh, James Wong Howe, the cinematographer, who is a, from L.A. Uh, and then Sajid Rai is Indian and, uh, or Bengali. Uh, and there's no women. But it's pretty interesting anyway, because they talk about all these, like Howard Hawks says uh, he was going to make Casablanca and Curtiz was going to make this other one. Oh, uh, Sergeant York. And they switched. Oh. And so he ended up making Sergeant York and uh, Curtiz made Casablanca. And he said, I wouldn't have been able to do anything with Casablanca. Too stagey. And I thought, fuck you, old man. <laughs> It's only the most popular movie ever. Too stagey my ass. No one watches Sergeant York at Christmas. No. <laughs> yeah. All right, I'm going to have to jump off here in a minute. Yeah, it's great talking to you, man. Thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Will you uh, tell me when it posts and we'll tweet it and all that jazz? Awesome. Yeah, it should be Monday. Do you want, do you want to plug anything before we go? Yeah. Uh, once again, if you go to gregfruits.com, I'll be um, doing my podcast December 9th. You can also, uh, that's a live version from right here at the Porpoise of Fruititude with all the Christmas lights. And it'll be a Christmas spooktacular. And then uh, every week on Monday or Tuesday, uh, the podcast drops, The Smartest Man in the World, my wife Jennifer and I. And on December 12th, Who's Live Anyway? Um, that'll be at houseseats.com or you can go to Greg Proops and the link is there. And uh, I'm going to do a New Year's show probably with Ben Glebe, who's a comedian friend and mine here in Los Angeles. We often do improv shows together over the zoom. So that'll get posted soon. And I have a million albums. You can buy all of those and keep me afloat during this time because I haven't had a chance to really tour much. I was on the road 200 and something days last year. Ooh. This wow. year. Were there no, any before? 
Yeah, we gigged up till March 8th was the last gig I did. Then March 12th, we went out to play down here in Southern California. And by noon, Gavin Newsom had restricted all gatherings of over 1,000 people. And so the theaters between noon and three o'clock all canceled one after the next. They had to. Yeah. And that was the last time we gigged. So my last gig was in uh, Swinomish Casino in Anna Cortez, Washington. It was a fun gig. Uh, and then we played Seattle Lemoore Theater. Well, we shouldn't have played those places. The, the, you know what? The pandemic was already going, in, especially in Washington State in those early days. I felt scared yeah. that we did a gig with 1,500 people at it in Seattle, but it was early days. There was only a few dozen cases then. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, yeah, we had 75 dates booked. I probably had a hundred and something dates on the book this year before it all went to, but you know what? Don't cry for me, Argentina. Now, let's end on we'll be back. Positive. Yes. Excellent. Yeah, we'll be back. All right, thank we'll you. We'll put so it on hold for a while until we get shit under control. <laughs> Actually, the, the last gig I went to before lockdown was David Lee Roth and Kiss at the Staples Center. And it was fantastic. And you know how they, they're calling Dr. Love and Paul Stanley always oh, says, who's got rock and yeah. roll pneumonia? Yeah. yeah there's yeah. something with virus. That, yeah, that's just fantastic. Um, Kiss. Um, my friend Matt Weinhold was at a show in Sacramento. And um, he, was, he was a huge Kiss fan. And he said, I was, you know, what was his joke? I was in the Kiss Army when I was little. Who were we going to go to war with, Abba? Um, he goes, uh, at one point, the show, Paul goes, uh, we just voted Sacramento the rock and roll capital of California. And Matt turns to his friends and go, and to think we were here. And then what was the other one? We don't have any feminists out there tonight, do we? <laughs> I saw them too, of course. Awesome. But I'm leaving you on that note. We'll, next. For next time, we'll, we'll talk about Kiss Extra. Definitely. Thank you so much, Greg. Thanks, Paul. All right. That was excellent. A pleasure to have Greg on the show. Hope you all enjoyed it too. You can find Greg at gregproops.com and at gregproops on Twitter. In Southpaw News, the Lost Archimedes album is now distributed on all the sites, Apple Music, Amazon, all those. And you can get it on my favorite, Bandcamp, as well. The Quiet has called the record far more interesting than your usual spoken word slash comedy albums, so that was awesome. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff on Bandcamp, too, including the podcast collection Decalogue series, which are, you know, pay whatever you want. There's a whole bunch of other stuff on YouTube and over at YoungSouthPaw.com, too. If you take the time to review, subscribe, or share, that'd be much appreciated. And thanks, y'all, for listening.